Hey everybody and welcome to You'll Probably Agree uh, for part two of End of the World Month. I'm talking about Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh, today I have my usual returning co-host Ian Simmons from KickingTheSeat.com and my friend Danielle Saltzman from Saltzsea at the Movies. Uh, first time coming on. Thank you so much for uh, appearing on the program uh, virtually because, uh, you know, we don't want to die meeting together. Uh, we aren't Florida. Haha, <laughs> there goes that demographic for my show. Uh, so anyways, Dr. Strangelove, uh, I guess I wanted to talk about this one because when it comes to the end of the world, there's a lot of options. Stan I'm a Stanley Kubrick fanatic. And uh, I was wondering if the movie is still relevant today or if it's or if it may be considered absurd or quaint or in the middle. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to get everyone's gauge on it. What, what did you guys think of the, the movie and how it relates today? Uh, it is yeah, extremely relevant today. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about a film that was made uh, over a decade into the Cold War. And you can change the Russians to pretty much any other uh, country yeah. and you could still make this film today. I mean, you have a line right there in the war room about the president being more concerned about his image mm -hmm. than the American people. Mm -hmm. You could say that line today about the current president and you would not be lying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of, he just cares sort of, uh, more about what's going on with him today. Except the thing was, at, at least the president in that film seemed to be competent and uh, cared about what was going to happen with other people where this guy, if he caused nuclear Armageddon, as long as he's fine, you know, Bunker Boy is safe. But, <laughs> uh, well, Ian, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this movie is kind of, uh, it's kind of timeless, uh, unfortunately. I mean, watching it again last night, um, I mean, the, the politics doesn't really, change um <laughs> much uh but what, what's what struck me the most is that it's a, it's a political satire but it's also you know damn chilling I, I think i've seen this movie probably four times in my life maybe maybe one or two more but it's like with a lot of kubrick it kind of changes every time you come back to it or at least your perception changes um it's uh it's funny but it's also really scary in terms of talking about the the military position and and the way that these planes are sort of automatically <laughs> uh, ordered to go carry out their their missions and they reach these fail-safe points of no return and there's these you know these codes that have to be enacted in order to pull them back but what if something goes wrong and there's a lot of stuff that's sort of left up to to chance um, and that's, that's, that's terrifying. Um, but it also, another thing that I really picked up on this time was the amazing Peter Sellers playing three completely different roles and yeah. being almost unrecognizable <laughs> yes. in them. And not just because of like the, the fake teeth or the, the weird hair or anything like mm. that, but just the, the demeanor and the, the complete characterization of these three different complete, you know, strange characters. Yeah. His mannerisms, his, his voice, they're all, uh completely opposite i mean the way he plays the uh, president uh initially he kind of played it like real kind of zany 
but and it, but unfortunately it was sort of matching what George C. Scott was doing. So uh, Stanley Kubrick told him, you know, you got to take it back a notch. You got to be mm. the man who's in control. You got to be sort of the guy who's in charge of the room. So, uh, you know, Peter Sellers said, so you want me to be like Ada Stevenson? And basically that was a guy who lost the presidency twice. Uh, and he became the United States ambassador to the United Nations. And if you just look at this picture online, he, he looks kind of exactly like him through the makeup <laughs> with the bald head and everything. And once he played it like Stevenson, uh, him playing it straight is sort of what made it even funnier. And I know with uh, George C. Scott's performance, uh, you know, Scott, Scott resented for years that he basically, Kubrick just used all the wildest takes of him, you know, doing his performance at like a 10. And it uh and 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 it wasn't until like much later in his career that he said that it was one of his favorite performances and of course to keep the ever so pleasant to work with George C. Scott Bay uh, Kubrick would play chess with him and see you know uh Scott would would memorize it for hours and Kubrick would instantly just kick his ass in the game <laughs> like in an instant he just put a piece there and be like uh checkmate I already beat you and then you know that would be it uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the way he played the president was great. The way he played, uh, uh the guy who was inside the military base where, uh, what's the name of the actor, the bodily fluids guy, you know, who basically oh. caused this whole thing to, you know, just go through the roof. Sterling uh, Hayden. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, uh, when he played, uh, the character next to Sterling Hayden, uh, he, he, uh, you know, he was great at kind of just playing more or less sort of like a subdued version of himself. And then, of course, Strange Love, who's sort of like this ex-Nazi, you know, who's... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know about the the ex part. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's basically <laughs> saying Mein Fuhrer right in front of the guy's face, you know. <laughs> he, was, he was one of the German scientists that came over uh, during uh, Operation uh, Paperclip after yep. the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yep. uh, Peter was close to playing King Kong, the pilot, mm, yeah. but he didn't think he could master the uh, Texas accent. Yeah. It's funny. He actually got injured when he was in the plane uh, when they were filming his scenes and he actually had to be in a wheelchair, which is why they put you know his character in a wheelchair uh, partially. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how that, that happened. And yeah, that, and then for the for, for for King Kong, they actually got Sam Pickens or Slim Pickens, who who really is like that, you know. And George C. Scott, they didn't really want to do promo for it. Uh, Peter Sellers, I guess, didn't do a lot of promo back then. And Kubrick, you know, just said put Slim Pickens on uh, on uh, 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 who who did the Tonight Show back then? I can't blink. Steve enough. Allen or Jack Parr? Uh, no, no, no. Or, was, or did Johnny already take it over? Was, by it was it was Johnny Carson? Yeah. So they put him on Carson and it worked great. You know, everybody thought he was in costume when he was walking on set and doing the accent. <laughs> I think, I think uh, James Earl Jones. So I didn't know that was James Earl Jones. So I watched the behind the scenes stuff like yesterday. That was oh, wow. him. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't know that? No, I had wow. no clue. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's, uh, that is one of those great uh, discoveries. I, I think I've, picked up on that like probably the second time i i watched it um but yeah he's everybody's so great uh in this movie and 
because I think one of the, the reasons that it succeeds is you've got this blend of sort of this real life serious drama going on in that plane, even though you've got some colorful characters and the sight gag with Slim Pickens reading a Playboy when it looks like he's poring over some important manual. Uh, <laughs> but, but everybody else on that plane is, you know, serious. They're engaged in their work and they're like, oh my God, we have to go bomb the hell out of these people and kick off World War III uh, or, well, or continue World War III. That's what they believe. Uh, and then you've got these really colorful characters like Dr. Strangelove, but even the, um, the general that's uh, hanging out with, uh, with Jack D. Ripper, uh, General Mandrake, mm. Sellers is playing this almost of a, a cartoonish type of a character, but he's playing it as if this is a cartoon character facing the end of his life. Yeah, he's, he, he's, <laughs> even in the comedy, he's striving for realism. Uh, when, when Ripper is going on about precious bodily fluids, you cut to these beautiful reaction shots and you almost feel like that's exactly the way I would look if I was stuck in the room with this guy under these circumstances. It's a little bit like if Bugs Bunny was stuck with Elmer Fudd and Elmer Fudd was having a complete emotional breakdown <laughs> and like Bugs Bunny just didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sterling Hayden, did you recognize him uh, from another very iconic movie? Mm. He and played, uh, was it? Was Mc... No, uh, yeah. well, uh, McCloskey, the, uh, I think that was him, McCloskey, the corrupt cop in The Godfather, he gets it in the throat in the restaurant. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, oh my shit, how did I not notice that? Yeah, it was, it was like 15 years later. So yeah. <laughs> well, I, but uh, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Yeah, and he was and he was having it. You know what? I always get hungry for Italian food when he's eating that pasta. When they're like, I'm like, what? what? Was that just spaghetti and meatballs? What was it? I was like, Fuck. I don't want to go to. I want to go to an Italian joint now. <laughs> well, you can only order do takeout or delivery. That's right. Yeah, it's not the same. <laughs> get my Corona spaghetti. Yeah. Oh, that does sound like a like a sauce, <laughs> Corona sauce. Yeah, it, but it does. And pour some Corona beer on it. I don't know. It's yeah. like that scene in uh in a uh, 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 casino where the guy spits in the cop's sandwich and he goes fuck him and he just like slaps it together. <laughs> I have not seen Casino in a long time, but I got to watch that just for that scene. That sounds amazing. <laughs> oh God, that's great. Um. I want to go back real quick, sorry, but to the George C. Scott thing. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick was notorious for doing all these takes and everything, but Scott was upset because he was only using the stuff where he was crazy. Did he not uh, read the script? Yeah, read the script, (laughs) watch any dailies, like have any sense of what kind of movie he was in? Because I can't imagine him playing it any other way. This is the perfect you know, perfect character. So to find out he's upset by it is kind of like learning that, you know, John Cusack disowned Better Off Dead because it wasn't the movie he thought he'd signed up for. <laughs> I, mean, I could be wrong here, but I think it was, uh, he wasn't expecting any of these takes to end up in the film. No, I don't think he was. Like Kubrick was actually kind of like tricking him into thinking he wasn't going to use that. And then he did. And, you know, George C. Scott was probably mad. Are there, does anyone know, are there, I mean, I have the Criterion Blu-ray, which I have not watched beyond the movie itself, so shame mm-hmm. on me, but do you know if that footage exists? Is that anywhere that you can see, like, the alternate Scott take? Because I can't imagine him playing this any other way without it being just incredibly dull and out of place with the rest of the movie. Well, who knows if it still exists or if it's if it's in some vaults or if it's somewhere where George Lucas's original cuts of Star Wars are, which is like in that place where the Ark of the Covenant's located. Um, 
we don't, I don't know. think it was on the uh, 4K release, and I just watched that last week. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the I don't know if you guys would know what the original ending was, but it was going to end with like this huge pie fight uh, between everyone. They actually did film it. And like once they filmed it, all the actors were laughing, and it didn't quite work, and it was a huge mess, which is why they kind of had to clean everything up, and then they went with that ending where, you know, uh, Peter Sellers gets on his feet and goes, "I'm sure I can fuck." <laughs> now, if I I gotta ask about that ending because this is sort of like another Kubrick ending that has haunted me for decades. <laughs> uh, what was the Russian ambassador doing with that stopwatch? Was that the trigger for the doomsday device? Was he taking pictures? I, I was confused because he kind of slinks off into the corner and does something with this stopwatch or, or whatever it was. I didn't, I didn't quite pick that up because immediately it cuts to all the bombs going off and everything. Mm. Uh, what was, what's your take on that? I think he was taking pictures, but he didn't know what I, I, he was taking pictures uh, but yeah, it doesn't make sense that the bombs are going off right after that. But I think it, probably some way to smear the U.S. But again, like he was taking pictures earlier, which is where the gentleman, you can't fight. This is a war room famous line came from because George C. Scott thought he was smuggling a camera, which he was, as we found out later when he was, you know, he had that little thing in, in his shoe. That was like Well, that's pictures. and that's that's yeah. another point of ambiguity, because um, I read that scene earlier that you were talking about uh, the fight. Yeah. is ambiguous like the guy could have been smuggling a camera it also could have been a plant <laughs> that <laughs> you know because uh because turgidson the the guy so much that it wouldn't put it i wouldn't put it past me and say hey this guy was taking pictures um you know painting that little bit of doubt like well maybe he is just a russian ambassador and he's not trying to pull anything but then at the end when he's got that device be it a camera or a trigger of some kind that yeah he really was you know bad from the start um i don't know i the pie fight i had heard that story but it never made sense to me until watching it last night because mm -hmm. i hadn't noticed most of what you think of in terms of that war room is that beautiful circular shape with the big board and everyone kind of sitting around that round table. Mm. But in that fight uh, scene or the struggle, you get to see this long shot of the buffet table. I assume that's where the pies came from, but I never picked up on that. Like they've got this incredible, like for a, a weekend long conference <laughs> deluxe buffet sitting out there for these people. Yeah. Yeah. What he want? He wanted like chicken or something, but they had fish, so he like settled on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but I get it's um, yeah, they have like photos from like the pie fight scene from like an old making of stuff, and, you know, like the yeah, like you got strange love with Piler's face and 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 uh, you know everybody else, uh, and I love the characters' names in it. You know, they're all kind of double entendre. It, you know yeah, jack d ripper i only yeah. noticed that on the viewing last week oh yeah yeah <laughs> me too i'm like wait a minute i never catch this jack jack the ripper oh yeah of course and then you got king kong you know who's gonna cause all this destruction uh let's see you got buck which was sort of like a, a euphemism for a dick um and then uh who, who else do you have here uh i don't know what you could call i know uh when kiss off uh, you know, it's basically like piss off in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of them, uh, the president's name was Merkin Muffley. Merkin Muffley. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know in Hollywood, uh, Merkin is a wig 
that a woman wears over her private parts uh, if she doesn't want to, you know, show that stuff. Um, I don't know how to. Okay, uh, so moving on. Uh, but yeah, they, they all. Wait, you're not. Of, you're not going to explain what muff is. No. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of crazy names, but it's not like an obvious slapstick comedy because it's there for people to discover. Like, you know, you mentioned Danielle, you hadn't picked up on the name until, you know, I, I assume you've seen this movie a few times. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, it was on the AFI hundred year, hundred laps list. So I'd already uh, taken care of it years ago. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. I'm sure that there's probably other names and little bits that I'll pick up the next time I watch. I loved what was written on the bombs, uh, you know, hi there and dear John. <laughs> yes, yes. Nuclear, nuclear warhead handle with care. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did they say that? Did it? I didn't catch yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not on the, it, I think it's on one of the shots that's close up on Slim Pickens as he's doing his wiring stuff or one of those alternate angles. Yeah. He was trying the, to open the barn doors. Yeah. Right. It's like the high there and the dear John, that's the big obvious, you know, kind of spray painted on, but there's a more official little decal that's on one of the bombs. That says, it's a nuclear warhead handle with care. Yeah. And did, did you guys catch the uh, sort of sexual euphemisms in the beginning where they're kind of playing that romantic music and you see these big missiles that, you know, look like, you know, like Zack Snyder's obsession with dicks and <laughs> they're, they're like literally inserting the like one missile hole into the other is just attaching to the plane. I did not pick up on that, but uh, you know, now that now that you mentioned, I feel like a heel cause I didn't. Um, I, I just liked uh, general Turgidson when he's with his secretary being dragged out of bed at three in the morning to go to the war room. She's all hot and bothered and, and doesn't quite understand the national emergency aspect of his job. But he says, baby, you just start your countdown and I'll be back here before you can say blast off. Yeah. <laughs> like, this, this guy's committed. <laughs> yes. I only noticed it was sexual because I was watching a behind the scenes thing and they noticed it. It's not because I'm a pervert. I am a pervert, but I still noticed it after <laughs> they said it. Um, well, I'm a pervert too, but I feel like I need to turn in my card because I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a pervert. I just want the Turbo Man doll. I don't know how I fit that in there. I don't either. Yeah, fit that in there. All right. Um, yes, the, but yeah, the, it's kind of like the whole movie's a euphemism for about how men in charge just like to wave their dicks around and show who's got the bigger one in a way while still trying to be diplomatic with one another or at least they used to be yeah i mean you had the great phone call between the president and and, and uh you know the ambassador of russia with kizov you know and, and most of that was improvised you know where he's saying you know uh he went a little funny in the head mm -hmm. and he did, a, he did a silly thing well i'll <laughs> tell you he triggered the bomb <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can, and you just get the sense. I, I love that they never show the Russian premiere. It's all what you're imagining in your head is going on on the other side of that call, which is some probably, you know, drunk, half naked guy in his, uh, in his Bathroom. suite or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, That's what I was imagining too. Like he's like sitting in his bed. He's like, hey, that what? I thought you liked me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you never hear him on the phone. They don't even do like sort of like the Charlie Brown on the phone. You just kind of hear his responses and, I don't know if Kubrick allows a lot of improvisation on a set or not, but he kind of, he knew that Peter Sellers is brilliant 
at improv and they just let him go off. Yeah. I, here's a, here's a question. Why of all the, the characters, the, the, the things that you could name this movie, why Dr. Strangelove, a character who has maybe eight minutes of screen time in this hour and a half plus movie. Cause it was his plan to have the bomb go off, I think. And he wanted to repopulate the earth, but so outside so of that, I so, agree with you. I don't get, it seems like they shouldn't have named it after him, but that was a character. If I recall, that was even in the novel that the film was based on. Yeah. What, what was it called? Like red alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was. Oh, that was a good guess. All right. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was now. So, um, but I guess my, the thing is, because Jack, this whole thing kicked off because you had this, you know, Nazi scientist, you know, insinuating himself into the government. And I understand that um, and possibly wanting to manipulate these two other forces that had essentially wiped them out, you know, a few years earlier into destroying each other so they could get to their, you know, weird master race plan with these bunkers. <laughs> but in terms of was he just then manipulating the situation where Jack Ripper had just gone insane and kicked this whole thing off? Or was there something, do you get the feeling there was some grander plot uh, in play? Cause I don't think Ripper was working with anyone. He had just gone. gone yeah. yeah. He'd gone nuts and he exploited this thing that had been, you know, recently voted in as far as these, you know, emergency authority powers that kind of overrode the president. Now that now that's talking now talk about relevancy there. I mean that's what Trump's now doing with all these executive orders with these his emergency powers. Except here they supersede the president. Um, I I you know what I guess that's kind of the idea of the title is that although we don't see it on screen, it's insinuated that that strange love is behind everything in a way, and he kind of wants the rise of fascism to come back, you know. And uh, I guess in a certain amount of time, people will refer to the president as mein Führer. I mean, I mean, look at now. Now we got fascism coming back. It's it's back in style, and it's it's yeah. It's kind of disturbing how relevant that part is. Uh, but if I were to take an educated guess, I would think that Strange Love is behind it. What, what do you think, Danielle? Do you think he was behind it? <sighs> I just watched this last Monday too. It has been a week, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> all the Ugh. wonderful, all the wonderful citizens not wearing their masks. Yeah. yeah when you go from watching Doctor Strangelove to vacation and Exodus vacation, let me tell you, <laughs> that is a day. <laughs> that is that is a very sharp contrast. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like when you go to a film festival, you see a funny comedy and then it's like, oh, let's watch The Painted Bird. You know, it's a little weird. Uh, you know what? But, but, but if I were to go down here, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, one thing is uh, I really love the production design in the movie and the musical choices, the cinematography, all the mise on set in the film really seems to uh, resonate. I mean, when we talk about the war room, that, that, that's been something that's been copied and pasted in various forms of media, whether it's like the Avengers or the Justice League, you know, or, or Watchmen. They all have the big circular room that's sort of like a globe with, with, with the pictures and the missiles and everyone sitting around it. I think the boys uh, on Amazon recently did the same thing. Uh, with that kind of room like it's all been sort of emulated and I know initially 
the production designer of the film, he had this one sketch, this one concept, and he thought it's it's like every Clifton Brandon who was a product production designer. There's no way I didn't know now, not know his name without instantly looking it up. Uh, he, you know, it's kind of like every story with Stanley Kubrick starts the same. It's like I heard Stanley Kubrick was hard to work for. And then I showed him my idea or we only did one take and he said he loved it. And then Stanley gave me a call at the last minute. He said, you know, that, that thing I was thinking about, uh, I, I think we need to change it at the last minute. Uh, it's not going to work and we're going to get in trouble. I'm the only person who does an impersonation of a man who doesn't know what he sounds like, by the way. Um, <laughs> and that was sort of the thing. It was supposed to be more of sort of like a square shape. And then it turned into this whole global shape that, that's ubiquitous now. As a matter of fact, when Ronald Reagan first got in the office, he asked where the war room was. And they had to tell him that there is no such thing. You know, that, that was in a movie. You know, I, I, I think that was before he hit dementia. Maybe he hit dementia right when he got in office. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, you got that. You got the uh, cinematography, those Stanley Kubrick's last sort of black and white film. Stanley Kubrick always, he's, he's, he's one of the few fans of using a, a, a wide depth of field instead of a shallow one. Mm. And, it, and it works because all his shots are very strategically placed. You know, he's not just doing wides and OTSs with random coverage. He's actually uh, deliberately choosing every single angle and it's probably through his background as a photographer because he used to uh, photograph people in new york and people playing chess uh and then of course with the music the, the only the only uh usage of music we have is when they're when they're sort of playing the the uh song when they're when they're in the plane i can't remember the name of it at the top of my head but it's actually an anti-war song but they sort of use it as this pro-war sort of trumpet that mm -hmm. continually builds. When Johnny comes marching home? Yeah, when Johnny comes marching home. Thank you. Uh, when Johnny comes marching home, they, 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 they build on it, you know, a little more and a little more and a little more as they get to the target. But otherwise, it's completely silent. And then we only hear, you know, we'll meet again at the end of the film, uh, which actually came from uh, uh, Peter Sellers' uh, friend had that idea to use that song at the at the very end of the picture which i'm wondering what the what the meaning behind that is uh yeah it, it's a it's a puzzling choice it's a nice song but uh i don't know i don't know if it's some kind of a reincarnation <laughs> gambit or what but uh yeah it's it's, it's quirky um i i dug it <laughs> I, I did too i just i i would need someone to uh break down for me how that relates to the rest of the uh the film i, um, I think it meant like as a society we're gonna be here again you know well not after nuclear winter <laughs> yeah well i mean we're gonna see nuclear winter again <laughs> yeah yikes um but that'll be a long time because yeah. whatever crawls out of the out of the nuclear muck uh, would take a while to, to reformulate you know schools and and formulas to build bombs again it's okay trump nuked us himself without having to bother north korea just with the pandemic instead of a uh, instead of a nuclear bomb, you know, happy subjects. <laughs> uh, is there anything, uh, but, but, but what were some like uh, production or musical or cinematography choices that you guys noticed? I mean, with the uh, war room, I just can't see 
that beautiful photography working out the same if it were shot yeah. in color. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I know that they originally painted uh, the, the, the main table in it green as if they were playing poker um, mm. with, with the end of the world. Um, but yeah, but I think if it, if it was in color, it would have been a little too distracting. Yeah, I, it's, well, there's, there's a combination of, you know, editing and, you know, writing and also just performance, even though it's all audio. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the moment where we're watching the plane, the B-52 bomber that's carrying this payload, uh, trying to avoid a missile and all you see is just the little radar blip getting closer and the guy reading mm. off you know it's it's 80 it's 40 you know it's 20 you know that's it's it's wonderful stuff it reminds me kind of uh, of the movie failsafe uh, with henry fonda that came out which is the whole thing is just two people kind of talking on the telephone <laughs> uh, for however long it is but it's uh, that that real stakes uh, drama that it's it's not so much what's in the scene it's what the scene is about and what it means um, but as far as uh, production design, uh, something that with Kubrick that I've noticed, um, I think I've seen, eh, I've seen most of his films, uh, but the ones that I have seen and, and loved, which is all of them, is that he packs the frame, no matter who he's you know, working with, mm. packs the frame, but it never feels overstuffed. Kind of like what you're saying, uh, Mike, it feels very deep. Like the scene with Turgidson and his secretary in that hotel, it's kind of shot through like this, this mirror, and you just feel like you could walk right through your television or through the, the movie screen into this room and kind of like poke around. Nothing's wasted. And it seemed kind of, you know, cluttered and people having an illicit kind of love affair uh, when this, um, yeah, it just feels very real. Contrast that with the war room, which has a lot going on, but also feels very sparse, you know, that, that kind of ring of like light bulbs around it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's flawless. And it's, it's, as far as like movies being relevant, yeah, this, you know, still uh, applies today, but it's also something that I feel like if people were in movie theaters uh, <laughs> or going to see movies in the same way, this is something you can almost put out again and have people come and just be wowed by the spectacle of it. Because even though there's hardly any music in it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of dialogue. That dialogue all means something. I was just on the edge of my seat uh, mm -hmm. when they're explaining the the kind of bureaucratic nature of how this order came you know came to be signed into law about the the fail safes and all that stuff. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Whereas it could just be this you know kind of boring Star Trek you know blibbly blop stuff. Mm -hmm. It's all very important to the story and all very exciting. Yeah, it never felt like exposition. It right. it, it felt like we're they're just as confused about the vernacular as we are in some ways you know we're going you know it doesn't feel like inception like we were talking about last week where it's like oh in the dream this happens and then that da, 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 da. you know here you know you could tell they're saying what happens if we reach this fail safe well then this happens well then what if uh, we trigger the the doomsday device is there a way to turn it off not really oh fuck you know and you're thinking holy fuck you know at the same time uh I'm guessing that's how a lot of these things happen. I mean, if, if you've ever read Fear by Bob Woodward, you know, there, there are a lot of moments where Trunk, Trunk, whatever, Drumpf would read his, uh, he, he would tell his military generals uh, to go ahead and, and bomb somebody. 
And the general would say, okay, I'll get on it right away. And then hang up the phone and just turn everyone. He's like, uh, oh, we're not going to do that. You know? And it seems sort of like you have that situation where people are going over each other's head and not particularly following orders because nobody knows what to do. And just like any flawed human being, the White House is filled with flawed people who have their own agendas. I mean, uh, when you think about George C. Scott's character, he doesn't give a shit about casualties. You know, he says, you know, uh, you know, at least we'll only have 20 million people dead. That's a win. And he was based on a real life general who had a quote where he said that if there's one Russian standing and two Americans left, then we have won. And it really kind of plays off to the, the malicious, bloodthirsty nature that the United States has always had when it's come to war. Well, that, that is one way to look at it. Um, but, you know, Turgeson was, you know, he was not, he was a little bit too excited about what he'd figured out. Um, I don't get the feeling that it was premeditated. I think he was just chomping at the bit because as he's talking through this scenario, he's like, well, this could work and we'd only have 20 million casualties. He's correct because the other option is you have nobody left standing. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, he's, he's got to make these tough decisions. And, and these decisions have been with people for you know decades <laughs> since uh, probably world war ii and probably way before that in terms of acceptable losses and all that stuff i mean it's tough to hear and you know it sucks but it's also the truth because if you want to have you know if if you want to be standing at the end and have a society that represents what you at least are aspiring to be true then you've got to take some, some harsh action. Otherwise, you've got other people who may not have your interests at heart uh, mm. who, do, who are left standing and, and take over and <laughs> they become the people who are, become the superpower. And as much as we might not like America, there are, well, as much as some people might not like America or what it has become, there are other forces in the world that we would definitely not like to live under, guaranteed. America, fuck yeah! No. <laughs> I mean, there, there's some, there's some truth to that. No, I no, mean, no, why? no. Yeah, you don't, you, you certainly don't want to wind up like communist Russia. You right. don't. And uh, the funniest thing is, it does make you question. Well, how should we actually consider warfare uh, when you get into that situation? As incompetent as it may seem, is it a necessary evil? Um, are, are we doing the right thing? Uh, how do we play this off? Because, you know, we, it's easy to look at everyone in that room and judge them, but who's to say we wouldn't be in that situation and act just as uh, clueless and panicked ourselves? Well, I mean, I don't think they were necessarily, they weren't necessarily clueless or panicked. I think the worst they were short-sighted um, mm -hmm. because when you're talking to, when Turgeson is talking with <laughs> President Muffley, uh, explaining to him <laughs> why they had this failsafe program in place, it does make sense that that is, that that is a contingency for the exact mm -hmm. reasons it was enacted. And it makes sense to sign off on it because it looks good politically and also makes a degree of sense. 
But when you take out the human factor that, oh yeah, we could get a general who goes insane and takes advantage of this uh, loophole, they weren't thinking of that because they had the pride of this well-oiled machine and all that other stuff. So yeah, it was a mistake. And I just about guarantee if there had been a world left standing after this movie, they, they would have, if, if they had actually managed to get those, to get everybody to agree to those stand down orders and communicate all the planes back, uh, yeah. they would have gone to fix that glitch as it were. Um, and that's another great moment of drama is they do get all of the planes back. You know, the Russians take out what they think is four planes and they recall the other 53 bombers because they were able to get that code. Thanks to our uh, good friend, Mr. Mandrake, mm -hmm. except that the one plane that had, you know, had the crap knocked out of it by that bomb, its communication device was unable to communicate. And so they couldn't get any signal to it. So they're like, well, we just got to plow ahead because that's what they were you know, ordered to do. Um, so yeah, it's, war is, a, is an ugly <laughs> technical business run by flawed people. So yeah. it's, it's a miracle any of us is still here right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I also find it kind of uh, ironic that in the end, the Americans had to shoot down their own American plane through the Russians in order to save the entire world. So in the end, we had mm -hmm. to kill ourselves. So it's sort of a euphemism for, for in the end, when we go to war, all we do is just hurt ourselves. Yeah, there's a there was an HBO movie in 1990, I think, called By Dawn's Early Light. Mm. Um, there was a drama and it dealt with sort of the same uh, issue of, uh, you know, contingency plans. I think it was like there was an attack on Washington and the only person left uh, was like the Secretary of the Interior, who was played by uh, William... Uh, McGavin, Darren McGavin, I think, from the dad from A Christmas Story <laughs> and Kolchak, the Night Stalker, <laughs> who's just this kind of bumbling, like, I, I guess I'll do whatever you tell me to. In general, I don't know anything about war. Um, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things where you have to kind of sacrifice some of the military because they're about to do something that's going to destroy the entire planet. Um, yeah, I recommend checking that out too. And also, James Earl Jones is in that movie as well. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I forgot about that. Wow. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that was an intentional cast. Yeah, God, I haven't watched that movie in probably probably since it came out when I was like 13. Uh, it's probably time for a rewatch. Yeah, yeah, yep. It's, I mean, now we're not worried about war. I mean, God, if we got attacked now, we would be the most vulnerable. This would be the we best would time. be screwed. This would be the best time to attack America. Uh, I don't. I'm not promoting that, by the way. All right, before the CIA <laughs> comes after me. Uh, but yes, this would be the exact moment when our economy's in the toilet, when everyone's dying. I think, fortunately, everybody else is dying for this pandemic. So, uh, not fortunately, but you know, so we don't get hit by a bomb. You know, mm -hmm. fortunately, but it really just. Oh God, it's it's. You know, the, the, that's the thing. Stanley, people think, oh, Stanley Kubrick isn't the right kind of guy to make a comedy. But it's like, this is, but this is so bleak and dark. He's the perfect choice. And originally, this wasn't going to be a comedy. And then uh, eventually, he decided to make it so. Uh, because it, it just, everything just seems so absurd. How, how else could you tell the story in a way? Um, so was the, was I, and I haven't read the novel. Is the novel just a straight kind of, political thriller or something mm -hmm. or is it a commentary or what is it i think i don't know what it's like thematically but i do know it's dramatic in tone mm -hmm. um and uh, the original author of it uh he 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 didn't like the movie um 
But I think as time went on, he might have warmed up to it. But don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. Um, you know what, what? What I wonder though is uh, how would how how do you think if you were to make this movie today? How do you think it could be made? I you know I I honestly don't know because um, yeah. it it. As, as relevant as it is, I think, uh, thematically and in terms of the way that countries kind of play off of each other, mm. this is going to sound so weird, but, but nuclear warriors seem so passe. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think... moment, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, it just, it has felt that way for a while. I mean, if you talk about the context under which we've been talking about dealing with foreign countries in the last uh, 10 years or so, there's been talk of aggression and things like that. But a lot of what we're talking about is informational warfare. Um, and, you know, even to a certain extent, biological warfare. Uh, you've got, you know, everything from election meddling to, uh, you know, trade, uh, you know, trade calamities between the United States and China. Uh, and also, you know, this, this bug that we're dealing with that, you know, there's been speculation about where it comes from, but, yeah. you know, if, if you wanted to write a movie about this in 20 years, you could say, well, you know, maybe someone figured out that you don't need to bomb an economy or a country to bring its economy to its knees. You just have to let someone get in a plane and carry something back to, uh, to the <laughs> populated country with a president who doesn't quite know how to handle things. And, yeah. and know, people the, the that don't to listen to uh, the rules when they're told to stay in their homes and shelter in place. Yeah. It doesn't you, mean a whole bunch of you go to the beach or hold a house party. Yeah. You want to deal, you just have to deal with a country that has a uh, idiotic society. And I'm not saying most of America is idiotic. Most of America isn't. Unfortunately, the idiotic ones live in the States that determine an election based on a broken system. Uh, but yes, when you have a, a, a society that doesn't listen, you, you, you can easily manipulate and destroy it. I think if Dr. Strangelove were to be made today, it would probably be about a pandemic and it would just be about the United States not knowing how to handle it. But how would you make it more absurd than it is today? Because everything today makes Strangelove as wacky as it is. It seems kind of quaint, in my opinion. Like, I don't remember in any comedies the president of the United States telling... Uh, its own citizens that they can take bleach and put it in their veins and then shove well, a flashlight yeah, but, up their but, ass. No, you know? but he didn't, he didn't actually say that. That's, you know, that was a clever media interpretation of what he said. You know, he didn't get his words right, but you know, Trump never said that. Well, even if he didn't, it sounded that well, way. Well, no, it sounded that way because it was filtered through a media that doesn't, that actively doesn't like him and does everything they can to paint a bad picture of him. Now, whether or not you think that's warranted, that's another story. But, you know, a lot of what Trump says is not actually digested in the moment by people because they don't watch what he says. They don't watch a full press conference or whatever. They realize on, you know, news bites or, you know, comedy shows to tell them what's going on to interpret it for them. So by the time it actually makes it into their brains, it's not Trump said this. It's, oh, Trump said this exaggerated thing. And isn't he so stupid? I mean, he never said to drink bleach, but everyone thinks that he said to drink bleach. Yeah. Well, you know, that is partially true because I don't think he particularly said that. And I remember watching the entire conference and thinking he did say that at the time. I mean, you could just see sort of like the look of horror on Dr. Burke's face. 
Um, but he didn't say anything. He was asking a question, and that's the thing. I mean, he was yeah. he he wasn't saying everyone should drink bleach or you know everyone yeah. should drink disinfectant. He posed a he posed a hypothetical question uh, in the moment. We don't have to turn this into a defense of Trump or an argument about it. But yeah. uh, I'm just saying that there is. <laughs> I was almost going to say the invoke the phrase both sides, but even that's messy. So, uh, yeah. 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 Because there's Nazi and not Nazi. No, uh, but the, the thing is, but to relate it to Dr. Strangelove, it's really about miscommunication. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's the uh, thing with, with a modern day version of it would be how do you handle sort of that, that lack of, of Intel between parties because the whole reason this 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 uh plan r happened which uh enacted the doomsday device was because someone in some base who had too much power with not enough oversight was able to uh basically trigger the end of the world uh, and yeah i don't think you could make this movie today because everything has just become just just so absurd that that i i just don't even don't even know how you could write political comedy anymore <laughs> in general <laughs> well it's it's funny because something i just picked up on last night was uh you know kubrick or maybe this was in the novel too but the prescience of manipulating information on a mass scale because one of the ways that ripper was able to get away with his plan was to convince everybody on the base that they had been attacked and that the russians you know could you know he says this over the loudspeaker like if anybody approaches the base they could be you know an agent of russia don't trust anybody unless you know them personally Mm. one of the ways he was able to get away with this was by confiscating all of the personal radios on the entire base and you know uh, mandrake found one by accident in one of the control rooms and that's how he's like oh there's still civilian radio stations so i don't think we've been attacked Mm. uh but if he hadn't found that the entire (laughs) uh without a hitch um yeah one thing i did another funny name uh colonel bat guano the, uh, <laughs> the 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 guy who comes to take uh mandrake into custody and ends up you know shooting out the coke machine to get coins for the payphone uh <laughs> to get a line to the president and that lovely line uh you know you're gonna have to answer to the coca-cola company <laughs> Just, yeah another like little dig at the intersection of or the importance of the corporation via the state yeah and probably a dig at uh i don't know if they were doing it back then with movies but when they would have product placement to uh uh it's like we have to we have to recognize coca-cola for this film oh my god yeah uh it's certainly the double entendres are are are, uh, um uh, something that's unique um (laughs) But, you know, uh, it's funny. I guess the war room was actually inspired by Metropolis. And I guess I could see that with a lot of the flashing lights and Ooh. things like that. Yeah, I, I never realized that until then. So was this, and you may have mentioned this before, I, I missed it, but was this the first, like, on-film depiction of a war room? Uh, did this kind of set a stage, or was, were there an idea beforehand that it would be the place where, like, the generals and the top brass would meet to, like, look at things on screen? Well, I think, as you said, there was Failsafe that came out that same year, but it wasn't like a war. I, I don't think they had a war room in terms of that particular scale. 
Uh, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen Failsafe in twenty years. My yeah. my recollection is it's just like Henry Fonda and this other aide like sitting in a room talking to the to the Russian premier. Yeah, um, but no, because it's it's weird because I don't know if this was a fabrication that just kind of grew in the popular imagination of, you know, you mentioned it yourself when Reagan got into the white house, he's like, where's the war room. Um, And then people, you know, said there is no war room. Now that here's my question. Were they lying to him? (laughs) Um, They might've been because they have, they have CENTCOM, they have a central command. So unless they were all using zoom like 50 years before it existed, I I would have to call bullshit on that. Like people have to meet somewhere to to talk strategy and things. There might be, I mean, they did have uh, that bunker built. Uh, who knows? Yeah. When was that bunker built? That might be their war room. The other, the other, uh, 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 the thing is, is that, whatever room Obama and Clinton were sitting in when they took down bin Laden, I think that would be considered their war room. It's just not quite as, as, as Stylish. grand <laughs> yeah, as you would see yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's, it's funny. A uh, fail safe. I remember, I think was that Sidney Lamette who directed that and they were coming out the same year as strange love and Kubrick threatened to sue the production because it was coming out at the same time and he didn't want it to overshadow his film. And luckily that movie came out, it bombed, no pun intended. And You didn't uh, like Failsafe? I didn't see it. Uh, oh, so I'm saying, say, for, <laughs> I'm saying fortunately for that production and for the filmmakers there, I'm not saying fuck that movie or anything. <laughs> you know? Watch, uh, I, and again, I've not seen Failsafe in a long time, but it's, it's another one of those tense like crazy tense movies for for just being a couple of people talking on a phone. Yeah. 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 I didn't realize it came out the same year. I always thought Failsafe was much earlier. That's crazy. Yeah. It uh I guess I guess it did. But uh if you if you um I guess well now that you're sort of we're living in an Armageddon like moments, how does that feel when watching this movie in that context? Uh, I don't, <laughs> I can't, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm having trouble with the prom, the premise of, of living in an Armageddon uh, context. I mean, things are certainly bad, but you know, civilization has been here before um, yeah. in some form or another. So we have, uh, but then again, there's always a first time for everything and possibly a last. So uh, I, I just, I have a bit more optimism, I think, <laughs> yeah. than to say, yeah, this is the end times. Yeah. I don't think it's the end. No, <laughs> but this is under the world month. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> to your point, yes, very much so. Um, no, it's it's still a fascination. It's still it's sad because it is so relevant, but it's also reassuring because it's so relevant. Uh, because again, this movie has. I don't think there's ever been a time when Doctor Strangelove has not been a Brought relevant yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like 1984, like it's been brought up mm-hmm. in you know the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and it's coming back in the Trump administration. I mean, George Orwell had a hell of a <laughs> he had a he had a marketer's mind when he wrote that book. He's like, this is this is never going out of style. He he wrote yeah, that. I mean, all you gotta do is change the uh, villain or change the Russians to another uh, country. Yeah, change it to another country. Change 1984 to a different year. Good to go. Yep. There you go. Just slap on that label. <laughs> Good. Well, what, what do you think, Daniel? What do you think of living in uh, coronavirus and how it felt watching uh, Dr. Strangelove? 
Well, put it this way. Last Monday when I watched the film, I needed comedies to try and get me through a pandemic funk that I've been in. And yeah, this was my go-to, the first go-to film of the day to watch uh, before uh, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir had his press briefing at three. I'm like, because I, I thought about watching Jerry Maguire and then I looked at the uh, clock and realized, yeah, I don't have uh, over two hours right now. <laughs> so I just put in uh, Dr. Strangelove and then later that night decided to do Vacation 1 and uh, Xmas Vacation. <laughs> Was it a doomsday clock? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, here, here's a question, Danielle. Why did you skip the European vacation? Because I've seen Xmas Vacation a gazillion times and I knew I'd be laughing up a storm. Okay. That <laughs> European <laughs> vacation isn't funny. <laughs> well, I was, was going to ask if that was the reason or if there was something this, else. <laughs> the scenes with Julia Louis-Dreyfus alone. Yeah. Head over and I'll show you. Fly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or that squirrel. Oh, yeah. I, I have a Christmas vacation. Uh, I have a Christmas vacation ice maker and two Christmas vacation glasses in my place. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite com – it might be my favorite comedy uh, next to Happy Gilmore. Uh, uh, I mean, and I'm Jewish, and that's like one of the few films I will watch uh, in December uh, regarding uh, the holiday that I do not celebrate when <laughs> all those holiday movies are on TV and you feel like you're the only Jewish kid in town without an Xmas tree. Mm. Eh, you can still celebrate it. Screw it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll celebrate Hanukkah. I don't care. Someone buy me a dreidel. <laughs> I don't know if that's how that works, but then again. Yeah, you got to yeah, make it out of clay, right? Works. Yeah. <laughs> I made it out of clay and it broke on me. Cheap piece of shit. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, I mean, I would love to do Christmas. I did do Christmas vacation on my show before, but I could do another one. Uh, you know, when, when it's safe to see it and see your family and you don't die if you see your family. I don't know. Uh, but you know what, Dr. Strangelove, uh, certainly a, a wonderful. Uh, does anyone have any closing thoughts on the movie? No, I, I well, I, I will just say, uh, I kind of said this before, yeah. if anyone hasn't seen it, definitely watch it. It's very funny and it's also very tense, but it's also, if you have seen it or it's been a while, watch it again because I guarantee it's going to be different in some kind of way that you didn't expect, whether it's a detail you pick up that you didn't notice before, or if it's just something about the current political situation that triggers some, you know, a different way of looking at things. Uh, it's 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 timeless and it's also you know one of the best films i think <laughs> ever made and it shouldn't oh, yeah. be surprised because it's coming from stanley kubrick yeah yeah that's uh what do you think of it what are, any closing thoughts danielle yeah it's one of the best comedies best political satires ever made yeah uh, it still holds up it's still relevant it sure and is. you have a president that is more concerned about his image than the american people <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, he's more uh, you know, I usually like to go with a, a Buddhist sort of mindset of live in the moment, but I think Trump lives a little too much in the moment and then doesn't think about the long term effects of anything. 
uh, for me, as, as we discussed in his, uh, his press conference, uh, <laughs> yes. musings, you know, there's a microphone there, right, sir? <laughs> yeah. It's like, wait, wait for your brain to process the thoughts and then, uh, extrapolate the information. Don't just, just, you know, have verbal diarrhea. Uh, Jesus Christ. I, I mean, that, that's, uh, what I'll say about strange love is what I love about most Stanley Kubrick movies is he never made a movie that you just watch once and then you immediately get it. You know, it's a movie that is always made for the times so people could see it again and again. So it has a lasting life. Uh, a perfect example, Clockwork Orange. First time I saw it, I was sickened by it and I hated it. The second time I saw it, I loved it. So, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the, the, the fascinating stories that, um, when Roger Ebert and, and Chaz Ebert did a, an appearance at Borders Books for one of his, uh, you know, last books collections to come out, mm-hmm. they were talking about, someone asked him, uh, you know, a big regret or, you know, a movie that he watched that he didn't like or didn't respond to that they came around on. And mm-hmm. his answer was A Clockwork Orange. And I was just hmm. I was shocked by that. Apparently he had the same kind of a reaction uh, that you did. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it even if you hate, a Stanley Kubrick movie, the first time you watch it, you almost can't not come back to it. Yeah. I mean, it's same with, I got to see Eyes Wide Shut again. And this time, not just fast forward to the orgy scene. I have to <laughs> watch, watch it the whole way through. You know, maybe we could go on that journey together because I've only seen that movie <laughs> once, I think. Are we going to have out. a Clockwork Orange virtual watch party <laughs> with our clothes off and masks on? Uh, you mean <laughs> eyes wide shut? You said clockwork orange. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll... eyes wide, clockwork shut. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing either of those with you, um, unless <laughs> you buy the milk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can watch it with milk. You know, what, what do they put in that milk? Do they put like blow in it or something? Was it like Coca Cola? Synthamesk. Oh, what the fuck is synthamesk? I'm, I'm, assume, I'm assuming it's uh, synthetic mescaline. Huh. I don't know what that is. I don't do enough drugs to know. You don't read enough Hunter Thompson either. Come on, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I don't even know if Hunter Thompson knows what he wrote when he wrote it. That's why it's so good. <laughs> it's just a stream of conscious. God, do you ever, you got to listen to the audio commentary on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's oh, yeah. Oh, my fucking God. He like calls Benicio Del Toro. He's like, oh, you fucking nutsy bastard. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh God, I'm buying that DVD to get that commentary now. Uh, <laughs> but yes, that's Dr. Strangelove. Ian, thank you so much for coming on. Danielle, thank you for coming on. Thank and you for having me. Yeah, I'm Mike Crowley from You'll Probably Agree. Of course, the YPA in YPAreviews.com stands for You'll Probably Agree. That's YPAreviews.com. Uh, so thank you so much, folks, and see you later. Monsieur has been locked! We'll meet again.